from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Michael Jower will join us to discuss the anatomy of emotion. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, emotions seem to drive much of our daily lives, adding the spice and color to our existence. But how do emotions arise? Are they simply products of the brain, body, or both? And what can science tell us about it? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Michael Jower. Mr. Jower, together with Dr. Mike Mikosi, has penned the new book, The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion, which explores the science of emotion for a general audience. Mr. Jower, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Charles, it's a pleasure. Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is really a very fascinating book. I'm curious, though, emotions are certainly a very fundamental aspect to our daily lives. Why is it only recently that it's become a subject for scientific inquiry? Well, I suppose that it's really based on technology to some extent. Over the last 20 years, functional magnetic resonance imaging and, and similar technologies have allowed neuroscientists really for the first time to get a peek at what's happening in the brain when people feel different things. So like many developments in our society, the technology sort of pushes the, the culture and the sociology a little bit forward, and in this case, the science of emotion been speculated on, you know, really a matter of philosophy, I guess, more than neuroscience for centuries, but we're privileged the last 20 years. I mean, heck, the 1990s were the decade of the brain, so that put a, a cap on it as far as an identifier for emotion really being front and center in neuroscience. Mm. Uh, in your book, uh, you bring up the point that neuroscience is, uh, in a sense, missing the boat and focusing strictly on the brain. Well, that's right. The, the trouble is that, uh, like phrenology, which is like astrology and practices of that kind, sort of reading bumps on the head, going back hundreds of years, people looked at that as, as a way to tell what was going on with the person and their personality. And the trouble is with the brain scan technologies, they do a great deal. They do enlighten us to a great extent. The, the, challenges not getting lost in the technology and, and believing that what we see going on in the brain is the be-all and end-all of the person. And, and that's the danger in, in our estimation, Dr. Mikosi's in mind. Emotion is felt in the body. Feelings are felt in the body. And it's really a matter of energetic flow throughout the body. And there's a great deal of science coming to light now that suggests that there's as much traffic from other parts of the body to the brain. So the brain is the recipient of information as much as the brain is directing traffic so that the brain is not ultimately the dictator of, of emotion, but a sensor of emotion, a processor of emotion, and more a conductor, you might say, of emotion than the band leader itself. Uh, what would you say is contemporary neuroscience view of how emotions arise? Well, from this, I think we ought to draw on a field called psychoneuroimmunology, which is a, a fairly new field itself, really paralleling in the last 20 years, we're talking about the developments in neuroscience, but psychoneuroimmunology looks at the overlap 
between the nervous system, the immune system, and our psyches and, and our psychologies, uh, and the endocrine system, I should say, as well, our hormonal system. So you've got a great deal of interplay among those three systems and chemical and electrical messengers taking place almost constantly so that there's no real line, there's no real way to say, well, this is a unique hormonal event or this is a unique event in the nervous system. There are actions and reactions constantly so that when we're feeling down, our immune system responds. When, when we're not feeling very well, our immunity tends to go down and, and we, we get colds and other sorts of infections. Just looking at a phenomenon such as gut instinct uh, or gut feeling about something and intuition, there is a great deal happening in our gut. The enteric nervous system is a self-contained nervous system in and of itself that's been termed the second brain, and uh, it transmits a great deal of information to the brain so that when we perceive, uh, we have a feeling that something's not quite right, we have a gut instinct about it, you might say, there's verifiable information that's coming from below that, that we're apprehending above. So in a sense, the conscious brain is in a sense interpreting all these visceral signals to arrive at conscious perceptive emotion. Well, that's, that's correct. I mean, we're feeling something all the time. It's only when something rises to a level of consciousness that we become aware of what we're feeling. But between the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, our physiologies are active all the time and we're, we're feeling constantly as long as we're alive. Whether those feelings become perceptions and, and really rise to the level of consciousness and we take action on them, that's another story. But as long as we're alive, we're feeling something. And one of the functions of the book is to illustrate just how far-flung feelings are throughout our bodies. And in fact, we, we really term human beings, uh, or we look at human beings in terms of what we call the body-mind. The mind being, you might say, broader than either the brain or the body, but the amalgam of, of, of those is what we might call the mind. So what's conscious, what's unconscious, what we know we're feeling, what we don't know we're feeling, what, we've, what we're thinking about, what we've forgotten, what we're imagining, what we remember, all of those uh, are part of who we are. In your book, you, you talk about uh, feelings being sort of the integrator for the brain, the body, and the self. Yes. Historically, I mean, feelings precede thought in, in the evolution of our species. The brain is, is built on a foundation, you might say, starting with the brain stem and the olfactory bulb, very primitive functions where our smelling capacity really preceded other higher capacities in our evolution, and the limbic portion of the brain, which is fairly closely connected to the olfactory bulb, as a matter of fact. That's why we have often visceral reactions when we smell something. We, re we remember quite keenly something that happened 30, 40 years ago based on, on a single smell. The neocortex is really a newer development. And so what we feel precedes our, our capacity for thought and reason in our species history. So we really look at feeling as a very fundamental trait and a fundamental capacity of, of human beings. And as you alluded to, really key to understanding ourselves because our contention is that the self really arises on the basis of sensation, stress, and other factors that are quite palpable and tangible. So without this sort of sense perception, we would have no sense of self? Well, that's, that's exactly right. You know, there's no such thing as a disembodied brain going around telling its fellows how it's feeling at a given moment. Uh, the brain depends on inputs from the rest of the body. And when you look at how human beings develop in utero, it's a very physical process. There's, there's nutrients, there's uh, all sorts of influences coming through from the mother, including 
stress reactions. And we talked about psychoneuroimmunology, the influences on the fetus uh, of what's happening to the mother, whether the mother is, is, is getting the right nutrition, but also the experiences that she has. There's a great deal of research going on currently, Charles, that, that really illustrates the palpable effects on the fetus so that when we arrive in the world, when kids are born, it's not just their genetic inheritance, it's environmental influences acting on them even before they're born. And then, of course, early childhood experiences as well. And how much of this visceral experience can be remembered and stored in the body and the mind? Well, there's a school of thought that says we never forget a thing. It's always there. Whether we have access to it is, is another story. But the point uh, we're trying to make in the book is that uh, feelings deserve a great deal more respect even that they've, that they've gotten so far. It's one thing to be able, uh, as you pointed out, to, to look at what's happening in the brain, but let's not be deluded in the sense that what's happening in the brain is exclusive, that feelings originate in the brain. There are, I guess that's, that's really the, uh, the mainstream thought right about now is that feelings originate in the brain and that there are bodily correlates, but uh, most neuroscientists would say that, that feelings are a product of and housed in the brain. And, and we respectfully disagree. There's a great deal of evidence suggesting otherwise. And that's uh, what we try to bring to bear in the book is a survey of that evidence. Uh, I, I'm amused by one of the stories you had early in the book uh, regarding the uh, famed neuroscientist Rudolfa Yainis, accosted by a woman in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly accosted, but she did make a point of, of questioning him uh, because his lecture was entirely on what's happening in the brain. And I think her point was, this was a lecture at the Smithsonian that I attended some years ago. Uh, her point was, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Linus, do you, do you ever need to, to go to the bathroom in the middle of a lecture or otherwise? And he said, well, yes, of course, on occasion. And she said, well, how do you know? And the implication was, you know, because there's another part of the body that's signaling you. And he sort of sloughed that off and continued uh, on his way. And it was, it was a fine lecture, but I don't think he fully acknowledged the point that there's a great deal of, of uh, traffic from, from our organs to the brain, and uh, the brain is as much uh, a receiver as a sender of that, that information. Why do you think this idea that the brain is the be-all and end-all of emotion has persisted in neurosciences for so long? Probably because of the technology. People tend to use what's readily available and what's hot, what's current, what's trendy. I suspect, Mark McCosey and I both suspect that over the coming years, the findings from psychoneuroimmunology in particular will enable neuroscience to have a, a more nuanced view. But in particular, we want to draw attention to the fact that feelings are energetic phenomena, that when you feel something, it, it's not just registering in your brain, it's causing you to get up and to gesture or to voice a concern or whatever the reaction happens to be. Feelings, as they become emotions, there's an energy behind them, and you convey what you're feeling to fellows. And there's a whole field now called effective neuroscience or social neuroscience is looking at the, the effect of emotions uh, as they flow, if you will, from one person to another through uh, facial expressions, through gestures, through vocalizations, and, and uh, so forth. But when people are angry, when people are joyful, when people are sad, there are very human consequences. There are very human actions from laughing, crying, jumping, dancing, breaking down in tears, uh, embracing, all of those things are energetic. We're, we're moving, and there are movements in the body that correspond, and that's what we talk about, sort of the emotion of the emotion, and, and that's really not gotten sufficient attention to date. 
And you argue in the book that uh, some people may be especially sensitive to these particular energies that people are either emitting or that uh, the environment might be emitting. Well, yes, there's a personality construct, uh, Charles, called boundaries, and it was developed by a guy named Ernest Hartman, who's a researcher uh, emeritus at, at Tufts University. And he, he started off actually, he's a dream theorist and dream, dream researcher. He's one of the few people, I think, who can claim to have met Sigmund Freud. He was four years old when he met Sigmund Freud. His father, Ernst Hartmann, was a contemporary of Freud's in his circle in Austria, and he practices up in suburban Boston. And his take on boundaries is that initially he was looking at people that have nightmares, and they have what he called thin boundaries. In other words, their, their emotional life is very vivid, as played out in dreams. The very colorful, memorable dreams, they get woken up at night, people who have very thin boundaries with these nightmares. Other people, less thin boundaries, but still on the thin side, and they register their emotions very quickly, their feelings very easily. They're easily sort of riled up. They, they remember things that happened to them from childhood very keenly. They are apt to remember more traumatic experiences from childhood. And then people on the thicker side of the spectrum, you might say, are less thin-skinned. They're more thick-skinned. Things don't seem to get to them as much. They sometimes, on the thick, far thick end, don't even necessarily know what they're feeling at any given time, uh, whereas someone who's particularly thin boundary is uh, aware of their feelings all the time and really has a, a challenge containing them. So the personality construct of, of boundaries, uh, we find, is very helpful in making sense of environmental sensitivities, what person is sensitive to, not only internally, in terms of the emotions that, uh, that they're registering, but everything from allergies and, and migraine headache, which could be triggered from any number of environmental factors, whether it's uh, lighting or aroma, foods, weather changes can trigger a person's migraine headache, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression to some extent, chronic pain, fibromyalgia. These are all forms of sensitivity that thin boundary people seem to evidence much more so than thick boundary people. So it's simply a way of assessing a person's uh, emotional dynamics, if you will, but it also does pertain to their, uh, their outward sensitivity to the environment. And you relate this in some way to a phenomenon like extrasensory perception. Yes, there's very good evidence of this going back years, that, that people who report anomalous sensitivities, being able to sense apparitions or what they perceive to be apparitions, emotional energies, seeing auras, feeling particular things when they come into a room, these sorts of things, clairvoyant perceptions, precognitive types of dreams, those, sort of, those, those, those types of things, they're on the thin boundary side of things. They tend to be environmentally sensitive, and that's the work that, that Mark McCosey and I have done is to document the overlap between environmental sensitivities and thin boundaries and these anomalous perceptions, which raises a whole host of questions as to what's going on with these folks. But our sense is that the perceptions relate to the emotional style of the person, and that in turn relates back to their thin boundaries and their capacity for processing feeling and registering it more quickly and directly than other people. That seems to be what they're reacting to and acting upon in these cases of anomalies. And our sense is that if you, if you can understand what's happening with them when it comes to the environmental sensitivities, the allergies and migraine and, and so forth, sort of gives a leg to stand on in interpreting these more anomalous perceptions. Uh, so then how would one take that data and reinterpret it in terms of how we process our emotions generally uh, as sort of a general rule? Well, it's a great question. We, we try, I suppose, in the book to popularize this notion of boundaries. To give you one example, and it's in the book, Meryl Streep, who's obviously one of the best actresses around, 
Uh, she's quoted in an interview I came across just by happenstance. She said, my boundaries aren't terribly clear. I sort of flow out into the situation that I'm in, and a lot comes flowing into me. And that's probably one secret to her success as an actress, is that she's able to to imagine herself very readily and to feel what her character is feeling in that time and place and so forth. So she's a thin boundary person, uh, evidently, and that she uses that quite well in, in, in her profession. What we try and explain through that example and many others is that people are all along this boundary spectrum and these environmental sensitivities and perceptions that are anomalous, they can be explained. They relate to a certain personality type and a certain way of processing feelings. That doesn't mean that that's any better or any worse than any other way of processing feelings. But the subtitle of the book is the way that feelings link the brain, the body, and the sixth sense. And uh, the sixth sense is really shorthand for all of these types of sensitivities, which have been denigrated or ignored or second-guessed up till uh, recently. You look at something like chronic fatigue syndrome, it wasn't that long ago that it was derided as the yuppie flu, and, and people were told, well, you don't really have chronic fatigue syndrome, it's just made up, it's all psychosomatic, it's in your head, you know, sort of get up off your duff and get, get back to work. But it is a genuine condition, and it relates to the way the body handles stress, the body-mind handles stress. Some people are predisposed to chronic fatigue syndrome based on their genetic inheritance and the life stress that they've gone through. Uh, other people less so. And you can relate these types of conditions to boundaries. And so if you look broadly at emotional processing, uh, our contention is it explains a great deal about what it is to be human, which you won't get by looking at brain scans. Can one move one's boundary sensitivity? Yes, it's not written in stone. As I mentioned before, people do come into this life with a genetic inheritance and with, with certain environmental influences that they've absorbed in utero. And then, of course, they're all the early childhood influences that are crucial, and they, they continue on, but nothing is necessarily written in stone. They're only predispositions, you might say. A good example of this is work that's been done at Harvard University. Jerome Kagan and Nancy Snidman are two researchers who wrote a book called The Long Shadow of Temperament, and they looked at infants and young children and then followed them into their teenage years, and what they found is that about 20% of the young children they were studying were what they called high reactors, which are equivalent to thin boundary people, highly reactive kids. About 20% were low reactives, or you might say thicker boundary people, and 60% of the rest of us in between. And then when they followed those kids through their adolescence and in, into uh, their teenage years, they found that for the most part, they remained either highly reactive, uh, low reactives, or in between, but it wasn't 100%. In other words, you can always temper your temperament, if you will. You can adjust your temperament through your own life experience, through friendships that you make and, and models that you, that you consciously take on. Mindfulness is a good part of it, is just understanding your style. And if you want to ad adapt it or uh, change that style, people are free to. They can't completely change who they are, but it's not written in stone either. What is a take-home message that you would like regarding how to look at emotions? I suppose, Charles, it's, it's simply that Emotions, sensitivity, and health are all bound up, and they're bound up with the body, not just with the brain, so that if someone's feeling X, Y, or Z, it's not just in their heads. In effect, we're all psychosomatic. We're all 
the psychological uh, and the somatic, the, the body and the brain, all play together. And so what we're feeling at any given moment isn't necessarily localized, and we ought to have greater respect for what we're feeling. And uh, hopefully the book makes clear that there's a great more to be learned about this. So in a sense, it's very inseparable, the two, the body and the mind. They're completely inseparable. Uh, Antonio Damasio, who's one of the leading neuroscientists, has said that feelings allow the brain to mind the body, which is kind of an interesting way of putting it. Feelings are really part and parcel of who we are. Of they're, they're the most fundamental aspect of who we are. And whenever we feel something, it's, it's throughout ourself. It's not just a matter of neurons firing. Uh, maybe to close, uh, just how did you become interested in this topic? It actually relates to my job at the time, which was looking at, at a form of environmental sensitivity, a condition called sick building syndrome, when I was developing indoor air quality guidance with the Environmental Protection Agency, or for the EPA. Uh, and we looked at how people uh, were acting or reacting in buildings to stimuli, and uh, some people react in a very different way than others. They, uh, they claim that they uh, are debilitated or they have cold and sort of flu-type symptoms, headaches, uh, lethargy, various other kinds of, of problems in buildings, and they feel better when they're outside of the building. We were looking at those environmental factors and the interplay with personality, and that's sort of the approach that was most interesting to me. And as some of those people told me that they had pre-existing sensitivities and even anomalous sensitivities that came before that particular building and that particular indoor air quality situation they found themselves in, I got to wondering just what was going on. And so the last 10 years has been really my uh, extensive study of these types of sensitivities and, and the connection with feeling. Well, it has led to a very fascinating book, which is called The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion. Mr. Jower, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks. May I also mention, Charles, the uh, website is www.emotiongateway.com. And you were just listening to Mr. Michael Jower discussing the anatomy of emotion. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. The sun just slipped its snow below my door And I can't hide beneath my sheets I've read the words before, so now I know the Time has come again for me and I'm feeling the same way all over again Feeling the same way all over again Singing the same lines all over again No matter how much I pretend Another day that I can't find my head My feet don't look like they're my own I try and find the floor below the stand I hope I reach it once again and I'm feeling the same way all over again feeling the same way all over again singing the same lines all over again no matter how much I pretend oh Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic feeling or stoic. 
So for the falling five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you'd rate them as more feeling or more stoic, and a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Jow, are you ready to play the game? Uh, I think so. All right. Here we go. Person number one, feeling or stoic, talk show host Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey, without a doubt, feeling. Her show is mostly about feelings, as a matter of fact, so I don't think there's any question about that. All right. Uh, person number two is the quarterback, Brett Favre. Clearly a more feeling person, uh, as evidenced by his wild swings back and forth from whether he's going to retire or whether he's going to play for the Jets or the Vikings or the Packers or whomever. So he goes back and forth, and that's probably a, a matter of how he's feeling to make those decisions. Uh, number three is the former CEO of uh, Microsoft, uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates. I imagine more feeling even though you might look at the technology and say, well, it's more uh, mental still to be the entrepreneur that he is and to have taken the risks that he did. I think that's clearly more on the feeling side. Uh, number four is the heiress, Paris Hilton. I don't think anybody could be stoic about Paris Hilton, at least of all <laughs> Paris Hilton. So I'm going to say feeling. All right. <laughs> she might do well to rein in some of the feeling, to be quite honest, but we'll see. It might be good for all of us if she did that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, that's probably most interesting of the five. I suppose his style is more stoic. He seems to be all about reason, but I think it's, it's reason based on a good, solid basis of feeling. In other words, I, I believe he has empathy for people, uh, and uh, that, that comes through in his, uh, in his approach to politics. He seems to be very inclusive, and so I think he has a good feeling for his, his fellows. So while his style may appear to be stoic, I, I suppose it's, it's backed up with a good foundation of feeling. Is that a fair answer? And I'm sure he'll be glad to hear that as well. <laughs> <laughs> no news to him. I doubt it. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Jower, I want to thank you for uh, sticking around playing our game. And again, of course, talking about your new book, which is called The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion. Thank you very much for your time. Charles, our pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.